0: Hello and welcome to IOM3 Investigates, the podcast series of the Institute of Materials, Minerals and Mining. We are one of the UK's major science and engineering institutions and our activities are focused on the promotion and development of all aspects of the materials cycle. These include the science, design, engineering and technology of materials, minerals and mining and their practical applications. We facilitate qualifications, professional recognition and development, share knowledge and provide networking services to a global membership and wider community. We hope you enjoy our podcast series.
1: Hello and welcome to the IM3 Investigates podcast on dissecting the intersectional experience. My name is Shardell Joseph. I'm a news writer for Materials World and Play Technology magazines and the IM3 Diversity Lead. We are coming to the end of Pride Month, and this year we chose to cover a topic that is an increasing area of focus when looking at diversity, which is intersectionality. People who have more than one characteristic from minority groups have been overlooked in discussions in not only Pride and LGBTQ plus narratives, but other narratives relating to marginalised groups. IM3 Pride has opened up this discussion to include some of IM3's other groups, including Ethnic Minorities in Materials, Minerals and Mining, also known as EMM3, and the Ably Different in Materials, Minerals and Mining, also known as ADM3. We will introduce our fellow participants shortly, but first we will hear from our IM3 Pride Chair, Emily Radley.
0: Hello everyone, I'm Emily Radley, Chair of IOM3 Pride and to celebrate Pride Month this June we're hosting a podcast on intersectionality with IOM3. So intersectionality was a co- term coined by Professor Kimberly Crenshaw um, several years ago and is now generally used to describe the intersection of multiple minority statuses or minority identities which leave you socially marginalised or in some way negatively affected by society and so to talk about that we've got five speakers to kick us off thank you Anamash if
1: you want to introduce yourself
2: Hi, everyone. I'm Anna Mesh, or I go by Mesh to make it easier for most people. I'm a graduate engineer, well, finishing my graduate contract with Chesterfield College and University of Derby doing lecturing. And yeah, my personal background, I work with M on, um, well, Pride IM3 being their social media representative. I also work with Martin as the vice chair of uh, ADM3, which is the Ably Different Committee.
3: Thank you, Martin. Hi, I'm Martin. I'm a ch- chartered engineer, chartered geologist with IEEM, I'm autistic, I'm an EDI sort of specialist and because I at work chair of AB Different. Thank you. And Nicole?
4: Hello, I'm Nicole. I'm a senior engineer at Fraser Nash Consultancy and I'm on the committee of ethnic minorities and minerals, materials and mining for IOM3. Oh, thank
1: you all. Um Emily touched upon of what is intersectionality, but maybe we can divulge a little bit more on what you know what it is and how c- it can affect
3: people and our members as well i think it's a very complex issue from the start i think we can get simple overlapping <laughs> intersections of our characters of what makes us human like our gender our sexuality our ability our age but we have our like our experiences what we bring into society from what we've been shaped by by societal pressures or how we view history and that i think brings into our sexuality as well
2: in echoing what martin and Emma have said it's a very unique kind of term because obviously everyone has their own kind of way of kind of perceiving it and viewing it and I mean, personally, i fit into various categories just from the way i am but it's moving past the category point as well where you're not only a member of the categories you're your individual defined by your different intersectional experiences not just a member off each individual area instead
4: with everyone so far uh, i think intersectionality intersectionality acknowledges that people have overlapping identities that aren't that can't be fit into a single box of gender or race or sexual orientation and so on and this typically isn't well understood in society or in conventional ways of thinking or within to
3: social structures is it do you think because we put people in boxes we as engineers, we love boxes and putting classifications of things, and this needs to be this, and, and yeah. humans are messy.
0: Yes, they are. Um, yeah.
3: Go on. I just think we're all messy people. Not messy, untidiness, but the way we're all constructed as people. We can't We can't construct ourselves to be a perfectly disabled, because what is disabled is all of abledness. It's just a, on a spectrum, and...
0: Yeah, I completely agree. It's that I think when you when you start life, sort of when you're when you're first getting started, you don't necessarily realize that people will already be thinking of you in a particular way, whether that's true or not is completely beside the point. Just by being you, you already have these labels associated with you. And the further up you get, I think the the more you realise what those labels are. And if you don't like them, then I think that's where it can become a real struggle. And and I think that's also where people start caring more about the categorisation as well. Like you say, everyone loves a box that they can put you in. And if you're sort of split between five or six boxes, and you don't really fit in in that sort of neat, tidy definition, then, as Martin says, it it can become very, uh, like you're trying to be split into lots of different pieces. And and that idea that actually we're more like a spectrum is very, I mean, it resonates hugely with the the disability side, but also with the uh, the gender identity and sexual orientation side. They are things that are described so much better as sort of a spectrum rather than categorisation. But I think it was um, when I was looking at some of my statistics stuff and I realised that actually it's a bit like trying to make your normal distribution fit into some kind of binomial distribution for the very sand among us. Um, And it's just it doesn't work very well (laughs) we're much better left as a spectrum but it doesn't it doesn't fit in those neat tidy boxes for people
1: so do you think that we need to because obviously um we have these boxes and there might be value in categorization it might actually hinder um someone feeling well or just creating an inclusive environment. So what do you think needs to happen for people with more than one characteristics to feel included?
2: In terms of how things separate, obviously the separation is useful when you're trying to find what you can relate to. And when you're working in an environment, you walk into a company and you're trying to find an immediate who can I can relate to, who can I link up with, who I can kind of go to as a role model, who I can go to kind of talk about personal issues that you can't talk about with other people because it's a bit more of a cultural environment. It's fantastic because when you walk into, even my company here, you walk into it and there's a, a pride group, there's a, a disability group, and you can then go and start talking to someone. it breaks that initial boundary of, am I able to talk to someone about this problem or not? Or am I able to talk to someone about this experience or not? Yeah. And then from there onward, once you have made contact, is where you need to start thinking about the actual kind of spread of it all. And yes, it's fantastic to have representational groups, but it's the collaboration between representational groups that needs to be more emphasized in companies where they might do a lot of work. For example, now it's Pride Month, you get a lot of companies who jump on the bandwagon and immediately go for the Pride kind of logo and everything just to market. But then what are you doing after that? And what are you doing to support people who don't fit in the overall pride category? What if they only partially fit into it and they have their own experience and identity as somewhere else? And it's not specializing. Like you get so many kind of uh, culturally BME people, MME people who have a very different experience of LGBT and pride in industry and in life because of their cultural backgrounds. And you a lot of people automatically assume that everyone has the same experience. And that's what needs to be broken down and changed.
3: Yeah it's like when mesh and me first met up talking about ably different. we both noticed on our linking programs we're both out there to, to declare we're autistic and i'm not ashamed to say that to people mm-hmm. but in the workplace it's sort of marginalized and there's very hard to find people like you let alone in your company but in the sector so as mesh says there needs to be more role models and people you can turn to to talk to to <laughs> Not to get their to learn from their experiences, but then build on your own experiences to develop your story. You have to grow in your story.
0: Yeah, I I think that is a really good point, and I think that's one of the the harder things of being intersectional. One of the more challenging, should I say, is that. As you say, if you've if you've got one thing that you really identify with, but you sort of fitting in the norm in lots of other ways, then there's a nice, clear, singular support group that you can go to. Whereas having people that are in lots of different ones, it's quite rare. And and even if there are people out there who are, say, a disabled and LGBTQ plus or an ethnic minority and disabled or some kind of intersection they're not necessarily visibly all of them and so it's very hard to know who of the people that you're seeing are actually able to, to relate to how you're feeling and and the experiences that you're having because and unless you have had that experience you can sympathize but you can't empathize it, it's not the same and sympathy is is great and amazing but having someone that actually really knows what it's like to be in your shoes is very, very useful. And that's not to say that all of the same all people with the same characteristics have the same experiences is not at all. But there are things that will likely overlap, especially if you work in the same sort of area or live in the same sort of area, because you're exposed to the same kinds of situations on a day to day basis. So, and I'd, I'd say for me, I actually find the disability support much harder. Um, so for me, it's the ADHD and dyslexia, but the ADHD is what I find far more stigmatised. And every time I go to a a work sort of um, neurodivergent network meeting it's all parents of ADHD people as opposed to actually ADHD people themselves and they're almost shut out because the parents want to learn about how to support their children and how to make them less naughty and and it's like actually that's really not very helpful you're just kind of driving, driving that ableism rather than helping us be ourselves.
3: Yeah I mean I sometimes say when I do presentations on EDI and workplace disability, that I have to introduce myself first of all and say like I'm born in Northern Ireland and such like, and grew up in West Sussex, but and, they, and I'm a white male, and then what, what have I got to talk about disability? And then people know, some people know that I'm autistic and dyslexic, dyspraxic, but then I have to throw the trump card, say. I'm partly sighted and I can't see and I can't drive, I can't do all this. And it blows their mind because they say, How have you got to, so far my career? And again, it comes down to finding these role models. And I don't, in the past, people have not talked about it and hopefully with all these networks we're forming at IEEE we are trying to break the mould and how we communicate diversity and inclusion.
4: Yeah I think there should be platforms to talk about these kinds of things because it doesn't really come up in everyday conversation and it's seen as quite a taboo subject and it makes conversations quite serious when that's not the intention and you don't want to dominate those kinds of conversations so yeah having a platform to talk about these things is makes it easier for minorities in all respects to talk about their issues
1: so you know yeah we want to create a platform Uh, there might be some people that say you know in professional spaces that it's not helpful to highlight people's differences that's I'd like that's something that I've heard throughout my own career (laughs) and I don't know if that's something that you've had either but um what would be What is the importance of recognising intersectionality and people that do have more than one um, characteristics?
0: So I think both statistically and anecdotally allowing people to be fully themselves at work and everywhere is a huge mental health benefit if you're told to get back in your in your non-existent box because you don't fit then and you're not going to be doing your best you're going to be thinking either about how you can minimize and hide your differences or trying to adapt behaviors that don't necessarily make you feel happy about yourself but will fit with what your colleagues are doing because you know at the end of the day that how you get on in life and and that's not that's not very fair and the thing is is it's very different when you you just don't necessarily agree with people that's fine but you shouldn't be expected to act like them so that you can get by but that is very much the attitude that is had especially I'm sad to say within a lot of the engineering groups is you just put your head down and get on with it what do you mean you can't have a laugh you know the amount of times I've heard the phrase sort of as a compliment oh you know one of the lads or something like that and initially it made me very happy but actually I realized I was doing lots of other people who weren't able to integrate like that a massive disfavor by not pointing out when the things that we were talking about weren't necessarily very professional and weren't appropriate and didn't include everyone. I'm not saying you have to take everyone to the pub with you after work. I'm saying maybe some of the things that we talk about aren't necessarily the most appropriate within a working environment and actually everyone should be allowed to be themselves and feel like their workplace is safe and again a lot of the statistics as well as anecdotally do not show that and there are lots of people who are very unhappy and have damn good reason actually because again when you look at the sort of sexual assault sexual harassment side the figures very much indicate that if you are an intersectional person you are far more likely to experience those kinds of negative behaviors and to have that negative experience which definitely does not make you want to go to work and feel safe.
3: I think at work or on the lesser extreme at work, you can be misunderstood and not tick all those boxes to get promotions or get the projects that you feel you would like to be working on. So like people you because you're not seen as a team player like as Emily says, you don't go want to go to the pub or something and be one of the boys or because you've got other commitments or you feel like your family's more important. So you have there has to be those old transparent conversations which take time and trust with your line managers, with people that you work with and build those relationships up. But then conversely, that's a very dangerous position and a vulnerable because you have to know your condition and be willing to share that and, and come to that self-realisation that you want to share that because I could, I could hide my conditions and then bluff my way through but it, I don't as Emily said I wouldn't be able to bring my true self to work or within the institute or societies I'm part of
2: I mean the way that the workplace is kind of geared is inherently well it's put against people from intellectual intersectional backgrounds from minority backgrounds and things because I, I do understand it to an extent I mean when you work with someone you're more likely to hire someone like you as a manager because you want to have someone you can just click and get along without any problem whatsoever and that's what leads to lack of diversity i mean i'd walk into companies where i walked into a room and there was me and 300 other white people and you just immediately feel out of place and you stand out and that kind of puts a lot of pressure on you. And because you keep thinking, why am I here just to help them expand diversity wise? Am I here to actually be part of this company? Am I here because they like me or am I here just to be on their, you know, their Facebook profile photo 50 times over, over and over in photoshops into different ways, just so they can kind of show off, look at this person we have. And I've walked into a lot of companies and walked into like a lot of industries where I mean, in my middle experience, I've kind of seen and there isn't a diversity in, when I'm lecturing now, I've got loads of apprentices who have said that they don't have anyone from other backgrounds in their company at all. And that kind of stuff puts you off because you're thinking, well, that means they're not getting the different cultural experience. That means they're not getting the integration with other areas of world of uh, kind of understanding how other people work. And it kind of narrows you down into one particular field in one particular area, one particular type of company. It's a it's if anything, stopping people individually from progressing further in their career because it means that like, all you know how to do is be is act around that one group of people. And personally, I mean, a lot of uh, what echoing what Martin said as well was that promotions and projects and things like that kind of go based off social status in your company, not based off um, how good you are actually your job. And some people are very geared towards and Thankfully, me being autistic, I'm one of the more rarer ones on the spectrum where I'm extremely extroverted and i really good at masking myself. But it means that other people who I work with kind of get overlooked for a lot of things because they don't have that innate ability to kind of converse. And that goes right back to what Emily said as well about the actual problems with parents coming into it, where if you have parents kind of talking to four people, you never really actually get students and children learning how to integrate themselves and being treated as effectively someone to be supported and led and guided through your entire life puts you in that negative space.
4: Yeah, definitely. I think at work, it's definitely important to highlight differences, as which probably some people might not agree with. But if you if people feel like they can't be themselves at work and they can't bring their whole selves to work for fear of being judged, then that doesn't lead to happy, productive work. And it's exclusionary and I think a lot of people where they haven't been accommodated in their workplaces have left to to companies that will accommodate those things, particularly if if you're the only minority there and there's a sea of middle-aged white men in the office, you feel pressure to represent your minority and be the best face for that. So I think there's a lot of pressure in situations where there is actually a definite minority and you are the only person in the room that looks or acts
2: in that way jumping yeah. on that as well um the way that kind of works unfortunately is that i mean if you look at the fortune 500 companies about 98 percent have no people from diverse backgrounds in middle management and only eight percent of them overall have uh, anyone from different backgrounds or diverse cultures or minorities or women in the actual kind of senior management hierarchy and it means that when you walk into a company obviously you look around and go why am I here? Am I here to just make everyone else think I'm a bit of a, you know, I'm here to spread the kind of the Indian agenda to make everyone like me more. And uh, I have to act absolute perfect and I have to make everything better for me. But that means that if someone else comes in from my background, from a different country or something like that, suddenly they're put under a lot of pressure because you have to be your perfect self for the past five or six years just to get people to trust you. And then they're put under pressure because they don't understand that they've had to walk into a company and they have an expectation of them based on how you look as an individual.
0: Huge thing. And I think to pick up up on something Nicole and Mesh have said is the, the benefit of having intersectional people actually you have different thoughts as well you have different perspectives so you're able to contribute new and interesting ideas that aren't necessarily considered by the people that you see more regularly within engineering and other companies and by understanding that and by encouraging those people to join you and, and Actually, by offering them the support acceptance that everyone else gets on standard, you're effectively making yourself a better company and gaining the benefit of that insight and those people. And in in many respects as well, who have had to work a damn sight harder than their colleagues to get where they are so often work far too hard and have kind of forgotten the meaning of burnout because it's happened so many times. So, you know, they'll just keep ploughing on anyway. And and you know, you get yourself some really good workers. But it's it's also that side for promotion as well, is if you're doing all of this EDI side of things and if all you're spending your time is, is being the perfect Gay person on the perfect ethnic minority, the perf- perfect disabled person. I don't really have time to go around doing your how to get to your next stage of promotion and preparation and buttering up the boss down the pub with the beers afterwards as well, because you're drained and all you want to do is go home and sleep.
3: And a lot of like when we promote ourselves or promote diversity in the workplace, we do it as an voluntary capacity. So, it's, I mean, it's, that does take a lot of draining. And I do blogging as well. I do presentations outside of work. And it's juggling all this. And then you're trying to be the best employee you can. It shouldn't have to be like a juggle. And then you want to be a dad as well and be a husband. Very complicated.
1: Yeah, I think that's really interesting what you said actually that it becomes maybe our we all where we, whether we feel like it's our responsibility or it is our responsibility to create an environment for ourselves and people that we share characteristics with so do you like to what extent is it can it be a burden to be you know a minority or um, have a characteristics and how much does that burden increase by the more characteristics that you have?
3: The way I look at it, it can be a burden, but if I don't speak out and talk about any form of intersectionality or any form of discrimination or unequal practices or things, I'm going to make a, lot, a heck of a lot worse for myself if I sit in my workplace. But other people in the sector or in the industry, and, and it could probably other people with the courage to speak up and understand themselves better. And we will will then be more, it's not just oddballs or differences. I hate the word oddballs, but it seems to be in mainstream language now. We're no more different from anyone else. We are just an expression of being human, as we said at the very beginning.
2: I mean, the concept viewing um, people with disabilities as, I mean, with a disc in it is probably a lot of issues around it where, Obviously, people who have ADHD, people who have autism, like me and Martin, people who have Asperger's, uh, people have kind of other kind of varying uh, disorders. Well, quite call them, they say disorders. It's nothing kind of affecting how you think. It's it's a different way of thinking. It's not a negative way of thinking. It's not a com- well a compact way of thinking. It's not a half way of thinking. It is just a different way of viewing the world. And going back to the previous question, what uh, we said was that. We do have different perspectives. We do have different outlooks. And that means we have a better way of understanding things that other people might not. And we have a worse way of understanding that other people might not. And that's not because we're worse than anyone. It's because like every other individual, they have their own strengths and weaknesses. And we have our own strengths and weaknesses. Just because mine might be social skill doesn't mean someone else's might be. Mine might Someone else's might be something to do with maths. And I can do maths. doesn't mean I'm good at it. But that's a stereotype around all people that we're meant to be amazing at maths. And it's all that kind of stuff of, I mean, media portrays us negatively a lot of the times where you only see us in a few kind of lights and companies kind of avoid looking at us and uh, a lot of ways just kind of go, well, we'll only kind of speak to you when we have to advertise that we're doing things better than everyone else. Other than that, just make sure you fly under the radar so we don't have to have a chat with you, which puts more pressure on us, which puts more pressure on everyone else. And, um when you start speaking up for yourself you kind of feel like well this goes back to the age-old kind of thing of when women start speaking up for themselves in the workplace they start being called bossy and when you start speaking up, you start being called the difficult person in the workplace and it's unfortunate because we're not being difficult we're just exerting the same rights as everyone else has and that unfortunately means to everyone else that because we've been forced to be quiet for so long it comes across as well, some things may put you in a bad mood. What's put you in a bad mood? Deal with that first. Then come and talk to us about the problem. You, you're the one who's put me in a bad mood for not listening to me the past five years. That's what's putting me in a bad mood.
3: Yeah. yeah. We don't want to be seen as the grumpy... I don't. Or I don't want to be seen as the grumpy disabled person in the office. Mm-hmm. I want to be happy and jolly and just... That's where my coping strategies work and my But when a message is, is people don't want to engage us and talk to us and listen, spend time listening and to learn about what makes us tick as people, because we have to follow everything around the world that tell us this is normal, but to us, it isn't normal and we don't fit in sometimes. And to make that transition between talking to people is going to take time and trust and a lot of transparency, accountability. And people being real with one another. And we're putting ourselves up vulnerable every day we go to work. And I think there needs to be those open dialogues at work and in society. So
4: as, as a woman in engineering and STEM in general, I do find myself towing the line between trying not to be too people pleasing and not being too direct with people because it might be taken the wrong way as being too aggressive or so on. But I feel that other people don't have that pressure on them. For example, if... Men don't say, please and thank you. Please can you do this? Do you mind if I do this? Then they won't get judged in the same way if women don't do that. And I think it, particularly where where I've had negative experiences, I always think, are they being rude to me because I'm a woman? Are they being rude to me because I'm not as senior as them? I don't look like them. Do I not deserve the same respect as other middle-aged white men in the company?
1: I think that's some really good points about what we can be subjected to like, you know, within workplaces. And I know that from my own experiences in like previous workplaces have been subjected to, you know, just chats or jokes that are inappropriate or, you know, things that would kind of feel like it was undermining my own existence, but also not being able to be equipped to know how to deal with it or like how to respond, it's only through kind of educating myself and then also just confidence that I feel like I could speak out. So I guess what I'm saying is what advice would you give to people who are being subjected to, you know, inappropriate comments or just things that are too derogatory or just not or offensive, what, would, what advice would you give someone who is subjected to that but might not necessarily have the confidence to to call someone out within the workplace?
4: I'll, I'll uh, hold my hands up and say that I have experienced negative things in the past, especially at work where it's quite difficult uh, especially if they're the client and they're the ones making the negative comments. But I've had people talk about how women don't even like each other. They're so manipulative and then apologize directly to me just because I'm there. And I think there was an instance at the start of when COVID happened and I was on a client site and, and they were joking about where COVID came from. Did it come from China? And they started laughing and discussing Fu Manchu They were Googling pictures of him and laughing. And obviously, I unfortunately did the typical Asian trope of just keeping my head down, staying silent, not saying anything. But I think now, after the movements of last year, I I know that if I don't speak out, then I automatically take their side. And I can't make a difference for other people who go through the same thing. And unfortunately, I didn't say anything about that until maybe a year down the line. And I did then remove myself from the situation, but it did take a long time for me to realise that that wasn't right.
2: It is so difficult trying to open up and say something about it because when you're in an environment that you're not like with clients or with students that you've not met before, it's calling them out, you just kind of go... Should I call them out or am I going to be known as a lecturer who's um, the really harsh one or the not the fun one and stuff? And um, I think it goes back to kind of the instances of the, you know, the 80s and 70s and 60s promoting the, the concept of an ideal immigrant, an ideal minority, where you're coming into this country and look at how amazing we are because we're coming to this country. We're just working about any problem. We're getting our head down. We're getting through it all. And no one's got any reason to complain about us. And it's kind of it was made to kind of like, you know, upset the the ingrown population to make them seem angry at us for coming in and doing things. And that's obviously led to a massive issue with how everyone perceives us, where if we do speak up and talk about our own problems and suddenly we're not the ideal immigrant anymore, we're just someone who's here to kind of change their culture into ours and stuff like that, which, again, absolutely pointless way to argue with someone. But it's frustrating because I've been in many situations similar to Nicole where even at university level, at school level, people just make loads of kind of racist jokes. And I went to school where I was one of maybe 10 non-white people in a school of 1,200 students. And just the amount of stuff you hear all the time. And uh, every time you you spoke out, people just kind of go, oh, well, there's no point talking to you because you're just going to act like that. We're just trying to make a joke. And one of the things I have to do now is try and explain the difference between context to people. And it's that like, well, you let someone else make a racist joke. I don't let them. But I don't kind of call them out on it because I know that we're very close friends and it's a very different relationship we have. I don't know you and you're trying to make these jokes to break the ice between us. And it is that kind of, um, you know, I call it internet culture where internet jokes are very kind of harsh and much more aggressive than other places. But you can't speak to me like that because I have no idea who you are. I don't know what you're doing to me. I don't know what you're talking about. And you've just ultimately assumed that I'm okay listening to this. And context wise, who are you? And who lets you, who are you to think that you can talk to me that way? And it's just breaking the ice. If I said the same thing to you, you'd get offended. And it's just trying to understand what the context behind everything is. And the fact that you don't understand it when you talk to me that way is insulting, if anything else. Because if I spoke to you that way, you'd immediately bring out a racist card and start going about how all the immigrants are like this. And we're all here to do all this and steal these jobs and all this kind of stuff. But well, congratulations, you're the one who's getting angry at me for acting like you are. So what's that say about you?
3: I think that we at work, company policies have to mean what they mean. There could be more grievances, procedures that you can talk to people like in a hotline and you, you, or like whistleblowing procedures. They should mean something. Things like HR should mean, not always be on the side of the company or protecting the company, that as soon as HR turned from personnel to human resources, we became a commodity and we could be don't move what we want, moved around and done what they want with us to some extent. But was, I think if personnel, they are meant to be people, people, and we're not hijacking the role of human resources people, but human resources and EDI and intersectionality is not sort of covered as much. And as Mesh said, if you want when people mock you... It, or say things then that leads to gaslighting when that's the procedure a place when people say something and it brings other people involved and it makes you look bad and everything like that and that goes on and how do you bring that up because then you're seen as one going against the company line or something it's very difficult
0: hugely i'd say especially after hearing everyone else's experience my first piece of advice was we cannot do everything And we need to stop beating ourselves up when we don't do something, because especially if we don't feel safe or comfortable in that environment, the best thing we can do is remove ourselves from it. And that is not a bad thing. We cannot take responsibility for every single bad thing someone says we don't agree with because it'll never stop. And yes, if we can and we'll feel comfortable standing up to something, then Absolutely. But when you've had to deal with this on a daily basis or a weekly basis, you become indoctrinated to it, you become effectively gaslighted that that is okay and no one else is standing up being in that situation it takes a very particular kind of person and not necessarily a particularly nice one to still be able to turn around and go actually no you're saying something I don't agree with it makes me feel bad and I want you to stop because every day if you're having to deal with that kind of situation then one of the first things you start doing is minimalizing it to protect yourself and to stop yourself from feeling every comment that people say so you know it's, it's like what nicole was saying actually walking away was probably the best thing that you could do at that stage because you have to protect yourself and you have to look after yourself before you start trying to educate everyone else on how to be better people what would be great is if they did some of it themselves or if people who don't have that burden of listening to this and feeling personally attacked by it are also helping And also correcting people, you know, there's lots of courses on active bystanders and how to be a better ally and and all of these sort of nice buzzwords. But if you're not actually acting on any of that information and you still hear these things and you're sort of like, is that? problematic it, yeah actually it does sound a bit problematic but then you walk off anyway and it's not problematic to you what you're doing is you're leaving someone else who is potentially vulnerable and going to be feeling that every day experiencing that pressure in that situation and that's just actually you're not as bad at all but you're not helping as much as you think you are and especially if you're the kind of person that sort of bandying around you're great and you're doing all this wonderful work you know think about how something little like that to you makes a huge difference to someone else and um, and that is a, a it really does, because actually, like everyone else, the amount of times I've heard these sorts of comments, especially around the LGBTQ plus side, and it, it's just, it's like, no, I'm not playing today. Please just leave me alone. I I, I don't, I don't you know. Like, yeah, I had a laugh about it last week, but actually, I was talking to my friend, like Mesh said, and actually, they're also LGBT. Plus, so we're allowed to make jokes because we know each other very well, and we're also joking about something that both of us understand and relate to if you are someone who is not within that culture and, you know, actually, yeah, I have known you for a couple of years, but you're still not on, it's a bit like that sort of that team feeling of, no, it's like, yeah, you can rip your own family, but if someone else calls your mum something, it ain't happening. You know, it's very much that sort of feeling. Like, yeah, you you can complain about how nuts your nan is, but as soon as someone else says it, it's not okay.
3: I I think, Well, we've worked one about about three, four years ago. There was an incident at my workplace. I've had lots of things in the past. I'm quoting one now that there was an some behaviour that I just didn't like at work, and I. I shouted someone out about it and it continued and continued to the extent I was off work for four weeks because i high anxiety and I'm in blood pressure and I'm still on tablets because of it now and it and it's just and I think that's what partly because of my autism because my blood my anxiety does get high but I do think it was someone's behavior as at work and you can be tech, as a technically competent director but if you haven't got any people skills and how to relate to people in the workplace then as a as as how we assess competency surely people skills and how we relate to one another should be one of those skills
2: i mean i get the question a lot of times with students especially where it be kind of like why why do you call out that group of students and not the other group and a lot of the time it's a knowing when to pick your battles as well because the second you talk to someone and call them out for saying something horrific and they just go well i'm just going to say it anyway you know that there's no point arguing because that's just they'll never change that attitude unless something major happens. And the other side of it is also where it comes down to in the workplace is that at the end of the day, going back to the HR concept, there's where commodities where something that can be traded and used and stuff. It's easier to get rid of one person than to get rid of six or seven or 10 or an entire floor. And they'll edge us out of the company because it makes it easier for everyone else to have someone who's less disagreeable there than it would for them to all adapt and change to how everything works. And you see it all the time. I mean, obviously Martin just said that he had to take four weeks off because of the horrible instance that happened to work. And you just kind of sit there going, well, I've I've had a similar experience at university level where someone kind of assumes the worst of me just because of the way my, my paper says I am. And from there, you just sit there going, well, I can't really do anything to change this now because the second I try, someone else is going to get a complaint about me for being difficult. I'm then not a team player. I'm then someone who's not fitting into the rest the environment. Therefore, I'm someone who can be removed and replaced with someone who can fit in the environment. And that's that fear that stops us from engaging with it and a lot of the kind of company side of it as well goes back to like for example pride month is a perfect example you've got all these major companies saying that they're all supporting all these prior things and um, then you look at who they're spending money on and all these massive companies spend millions and millions on politicians who are uh, openly against lgbt rights you just started thinking well you can't want our money and not support us if you want our money tell us you want our money don't try and pretend like you're actually there to showcase all these facts when in reality it's just jumping on a bandwagon to make yourself look better and make yourself feel better it's patting yourself on the back
3: yeah it comes down to like you know company performance and metrics and mm-hmm. we've done all this and we have five percent disabled people in our workplace and 20 percent lgbt plus and 50 an equal pay gap between men and women and it's tick boxes if, if it's not actually if people aren't walking the talk or listening Practising what they preach, then it's nothing. And then I think when we're in, as part of an intersectional group, we do notice it more than the normal because we don't fit in and we don't we don't form a clique. Because if you're in a clique, you don't recognise you're in the clique yourself.
0: That's the I frequently refer to myself as a tick box exercise, which should be really sad, but I will mark it up as a coping mechanism. But yeah, it's, it's absolutely true, and I think it's one of the reasons why we need to have conversations like this so that people do realise that we're knocking about feeling like this and actually that when people talk to us or talk about us in negative ways, this this is the effect that they're having and actually we're probably people who are not completely shredded from it because we've been able to dust ourselves and get back up again. But there will be people who haven't and who have just gone, no, I can't do this anymore. I'm out. I don't want to play. But potentially permanently, you know, and they've either had to, stop working or worse you know and the fact that people think that you know there's the saying sticks and stones will break my bones but words will never hurt me it's like no it's it's not true actually you can do so much damage with words and anyone that's seen teenagers really going at each other should know that because actually everyone's had that maybe moment of oh Christ, I can't believe I've just said something so awful. ADHD anyway, you definitely have it on a fairly <laughs> frequent basis. And you, and you sort of think about the effect of what you've said, and you're like, no, okay, we're not doing that again, you know, and you learn. But actually, there are a lot of people out there who will say things, and they just like, they don't even notice the effect of what they're saying, and there's no learning going on, and they're just it's just that like, well, it's fine because no one's stopping me. So it really comes back around then to what Martin said about. Policies should mean what they say. It's not just a policy to sit on the shelf, like, yeah, we've done our bit. We tick this box. Great, move on. Where's the next box to find to make us look good? It's implementing that day in, day out. We are people. We deserve to be listened to. And also, we're not necessarily who the system was designed for. And the further away you get from that, the less you're being accommodated. So we're not being difficult. And I hate being called difficult when I am frequently. I'm um, just being me. And if I have to not be me, then you don't get as much. Might be less difficult, but you certainly don't get as much work done, and not as interesting, and I'll be a bit miserable as well. And it's not good enough.
3: Amy says, you know, you, you're healed, you get over what's happened, but you're still scarred, and you still have battle scars to get up. Some of us are resilient enough to carry on, but some people aren't. And fortunately, I think us, us five here are all able to be resilient and carry on, but. One thing may just set us back totally because in oh no, twenty eighteen, I got made redundant from a company after five months, and and I was just just left stranded. I was just sort of just about to give up engineering for good, and I'd completely devastated. Till a company in Manchester picked me up and said, "We see your skill set on LinkedIn. Would you like to join us for you know for five months and you know, five weeks?" And then I got back into got back into routine, and then another project in London came up for me. But it's building up your confidence and finding allies and people that will be good listeners and talk to you, prepare to ask questions. I think people people I work with are afraid to ask questions about me. They know I'm intersectional, dyslexic, dyspraxic, and visually impaired, but I don't get to me. I'd love to ask answer questions about how I feel and let them learn because I want to be a talking book to them and just let them learn from
2: me. So, Michael... Workers are fantastic with this. Where once they've not really had anyone like me in the department before, and most of them are in their 50s and 60s, because education, you do end up with groups of lecturers that kind of grow up and be in the same department for ages through. And they'll ask me questions openly because they understand that I'm happy to talk about it. They'll ask me things about trans rights, even though I'm personally not trans, but I know enough about to kind of signpost them or give them a brief introduction to it. Or they'll ask me things about autism and stuff like that. And I mean, you look at all these people who you walk into a company and they'll kind of go, Well, oh, we now have to adapt for the autistic guy walking in. But they don't because they've never had to adapt for anyone in their life and not realise that we're the ones who are actually being accommodating for them and adapting to them life and of the way they are because it would put so much pressure on them to even reach out slightly and it's the fact that oh god we've got we've got a woman in the workplace now we can't make sexist jokes oh i feel so sorry for you i feel so so sorry for you the fact that you have to be slightly polite to someone and watch as they try because we're reaching out to you in most in most cases we're trying to find a middle ground we can support you to support us and work together because we'll reach out and say Hi, guys, I'm Mesh. I don't mind if you ask me questions. If you want to ask me about this, I'm fine. Uh, we might laugh at a few of the jokes, which might be a bit funnier, but the second it gets offensive, I'll just kind of cry and call you out on it. But if you don't understand that, we've let so much go because we don't mind it. When we're calling you out, it's something that you seriously need to address. It means that you're the one being difficult, not us. <laughs> But here, I mean, my college is, well, where I work now, it's fantastic. I mean, I'll have, my manager will call me into his office now and again, he'll just ask me questions about things he's read about, I mean, BME movement, about uh, um, the entire kind of Black Lives Matter uh, area, the Indian experience I've had, my opinion on colonialism and everything like that, it just kind of, asks me questions that pops up in the news and it's not because he doesn't know any better it's because he doesn't know where to find the information and that means it's easier and it's also is easier if you asked HR to deliver a presentation on racism you'd have a hundred people bored not paying attention if you asked HR to let me talk to a few of them one-on-one in a small group you'd eventually have a bunch of people who'd actually fully engage and want to kind of share their experiences.
4: I think fear of consequences is a big thing on both sides for example for potential allies they don't want to say something for fear of being seen as inappropriate or offensive and therefore they don't reach out and build those relationships and people who do experience inappropriate behavior they may not want to report it to their company because they don't want to have any bad consequences come of that and i think it's very much down to the company and hr and your line manager even on how they deal with that for example if you're a large company that cuts that edits their logo for pride month and does nothing else throughout the year to support lgbtq communities then what does that mean it's just rainbow washing if you change your logo in most countries but not the middle east countries and russia what does that mean
3: but Emily touched on allyship and that's so important in the workplace is <laughs> but the first step to allyship is being a friend and then we and then then we can get to the next stage and joke openly about things because then i, I think they can understand where I'm coming from and I can understand where they're coming from. And then, then I will let them joke with us because not that they will understand totally what I'm going through, but they will have a better understanding and know what is appropriate and what is appropriate to say. Cause even I'm not sometimes politically correct. So my wife has to catch me up on that and I get foot and mouth disease. I will just say things wrongly, but, but I think that's what makes us unique as well, because we, we're all learning on this journey from one another. Thank you. Um, Yeah, I just feel like
1: a lot of what you said resonated as well. But, you know, looking into kind of, it's actually not our responsibility. Um, We have enough factors to deal with. We have, uh, we've got to think about the pressures of, you know, trying to reach expectations that other people don't have to deal with. We have imposter syndrome. We have all these other things that are already draining our energy that, we need to protect ourselves. So actually it is company responsibility. It is on them to uh, protect us, not just our mental health, but also our safety um, and, and just to create an inclusive environment. But I actually did want to um, touch on imposter syndrome, which is something that Mesh wrote about in one of our talking pieces recently, um and I think there's actually a strong link between, you know, imposter syndrome and intersectionality because you know the more well, in theory, this but you know, if you have like one characteristic, then you're likely to feel you know a type of way in certain work environments. And you know, um, I can only speak for myself, but I feel like uh, having different characteristics heightens the <laughs> the amount of imposter syndrome that I have and still do experience in um, certain environments. Um, you know, is your experience or how do you feel that imposter syndrome links to intersectionality and what can we do to try and push past those barriers um, that have been, that do does bring out the imposter syndrome in us?
2: In the Get Talking piece, I um, one of the things I kind of uh, I looked into was the fact that it keeps getting called syndrome. And obviously, it's known as imposter syndrome across a lot of places. And the problem I find is that syndrome is a medical disorder. And you do get people with imposter syndrome as a medical disorder. And that's ingrown, it's psychological, it's so brought up that way, it's all environmental based and stuff like that. But the imposter syndrome that minorities of people who are intersectional experience isn't a similar kind of mental disorder, which it can be for some people. But it's more of a impacted kind of cultural effect that happens from your environment you're around. And me having grown up, well, born in India, but brought up in predominantly mainly white areas. Now, my I had let students well teachers telling me in school that if I'm applying to jobs, and flying applying to university, make sure I put all the boxes about um, me being, you know, BME, me being um, India, me being from this part of the world, me being this disability, me being this uh, sexuality, because it gives me a better chance of getting a job. And that kind of ingrown sense of telling from birth upwards that you need to do this just to make sure you've got a better chance than everyone else of finding work and finding a placement and finding university and stuff like that kind of just destroys your self-worth as an individual member of any minority group, because you walk into a company and like I said earlier, I walked into a company and there was about me and these 300 white middle-aged men. I just went, I'm going to be photoshopping your picture seven times. I know it. That's the only reason I'm going to be here, and it completely blows your mind out of proportion because I've got no one to kind of represent me or talk to or be role model for me. And here, the reason why I did go into education is because I walked into this building and um, into my department, and immediately I saw two people from Europe. I saw someone from a well, a first generation immigrant from Pakistan. I saw someone who's uh, been born in well we're born and raised here to first generation immigrant parents and it's that more diverse environment I walk in and just go I'm not only here to just tick the boxes I'm I'm here because they actually value my skill set and you lose that immediate mindset the second you walk into a company and um, there's so many times I've kind of just thought and I've always backed out of cowardice, eventually, effectively, is that what would happen if I applied to this job, if I applied to this role, applied to this kind of scheme, and refused to answer anything about my own kind of like a, a minority backgrounds and stuff? Because the imposter syndrome of mine, despite me telling, despite telling me that I don't deserve to be in a job, it's also telling me that if I don't, I'm not going to get a job. So you end up being basically hit between a rock and a hard place of if you do it, you're bad. If you don't do it, you're bad. And you're just stuck in the middle just going, oh, I'm the worst at everything, aren't I? And it takes it entirely away from you. And being intersectional means that you've got it not only from being a BME, you've got it from being autistic, because that adds a lot more pressure to how your mental mind views things, you get it from being an LGBT person, because you're just thinking, oh, if I go into this workplace then that means that I'm going to be on the poster boy for everything and that means that I can forget to get my face out there, which is good and bad, because now I'm the face for everything. And I'm not going to lie. It is frustrating that times. I mean, I love being on camera and I love doing all these things because that's my personality at all. But at this workplace here, I get contacted on average once every three weeks asking if I can be on their new article or on their new poster, or I could be in a new video or anything like that. And I do offer to do it, but at the same time, am I being picked to do it because I'm good enough? Or am I being picked to do it because I'm the best speaker? Or am I being picked to do it just because look at diverse, just look at diverse human and see how amazing we are. And, yeah, it's oh, I could talk about this forever but I think I'm going to start eating up into too much time when mm. I
0: do yeah I find it really interesting what you you said especially about it being from sort of very young age because I think partially because of the intersectionality of the characteristics that I have and also because of where I grew up I didn't really have a lot of these problems when I was younger so I grew up in Brighton gay capital naturally LGBT plus side you know, It really wasn't an issue. Yeah, I think I did get called dyke a couple of times at school, but I was also very much raised with the attitude of you can do whatever you want. You know, no one's going to stop you. You do you. And uh, and again, the, the sort of the gender side... I didn't even have to address that until I moved from away from Brighton because no one had ever really bothered to be like, oh, well, you're definitely a woman. You have to associate with these particular kinds of characteristics. I didn't have any sort of notion of gendered identities or anything like that because it just wasn't bothered and it was only when people tried to say right well women are like this so why aren't you like this and I was like well I'll just not be a woman then shall I that sounds better never really felt like it anyway it's just it's the further up I've gone the more I start feeling like that imposter syndrome's really kicked in and for me having that sort of good start in life has given me a lot of confidence to be able to turn around and tell people they're being stupid Again, the ADHD also really helps on that it's really good for making you express what you think right there but it's 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 seeing the effect of a workplace crushing you a bit actually in some respects and of people's attitudes sort of going well no you know you can't be like this or like that it's not allowed that's not how it works and you being like well does that mean I just don't work because I I thought it was going quite well and then you know I had some really really negative experiences and had to sort of re-examine partially how I spoke to people and some of the things that I said, which were very problematic sometimes because I was just quite comfortable. And the combination of that effect and some quite serious sexual harassment and things like that. And it was like, actually, no, this isn't okay. Okay why am I getting this? Is it because I'm like this? And actually, that was when my answer back was very much, yes, it's because you're like this. This is why this happens to you from other people. And that was when I really started feeling like I was the problem. And like there was something I was doing that was negative. When it's like, OK, all right. then, and that's when the imposter syndrome side really kicked in because it's like, OK, so I, I can act like you in some ways, but not others. And because I can't be all like you, that means then that I'm not good enough. And that was very much the impression I walked away with for several places that I have worked and that was that's the sort of thing that that sort of starts bringing you down and lowering that confidence and that self-belief and, and giving you that impression that you don't belong here and I think to have that from an even younger age the fact that we still go on is it very very impressive and also the environmental and psychological effect that's happening there having it sort of in one go, very concentrated did not do me a lot of good so having that inbuilt from a very early age that's also really not helping or doing you any good whatsoever so the reality that you're putting up with all this in the background as well as doing your job and living your life is pretty weighty
3: and i don't think it gets any better as you get older because i'm now i'm in my early 50s very early 50s but it it just gets hot. To me, I, st- I struggled that in the workplace with pro- sometimes with promotions, but even with professional bottles being chartered. A friend of mine said he would have recommended me for chartering it seven years into my professional experience, but i stayed that another 10 years because I didn't think I was good enough. So I think there needs to be. And that was just saying to myself, I'm not good enough. I'm not going to pass. And then I got double chartered within two years. And then the JoelSoc, the Geological Society of London, said, Do I want to be a scrutineer? Because I say I'm confident enough to scrutineer other people charge ship processes or or trustship, ship you know applications and i think sometimes we need people to believe in believe in us more than us. people believe in us more than we believe in ourselves and that comes down to again to allyship and and like when we wrote, I know I wrote to, I'm talking about ably different, or the precursor to say we should have some support network or something. I thought it, we'd been ignored for about two years, and I just sort of said, okay, I want to stay remained a chartered engineer, but I don't want to, to kick up a fuss. And then by this year, since lockdown, things have happened actually and we've we've set up the group, and I think people do listen to you and. Um, yeah, personally, uh, I never really experienced imposter syndrome until I
4: graduated from university. I think what triggered it was getting rejected from so many, so many job applications. And obviously being in the top, if if you're in the top 10% all through school, and then you get hired into a workplace where everyone is so intelligent, you don't feel like you're performing as well. And I I am encouraged to apply for all the opportunities that are available to me, for example, secondments. And I seem to always get to the final stage and not get the job. So it's to me, it's telling me that you're good, but not good enough. And that can get quite demoralizing after a while. And I think something to do is to just stop comparing yourself to other people. Don't take rejection as a personal insult. And those opportunities might not even be the best fit for you anyway. And just need to be re- resilient and just uh, don't allow it to stop you from trying in future.
3: Like like in work, that even in work, before work, you know, to, to the application process is such a nightmare if you're intersectional or a minority group because people see things in our CV or see gaps in CVs or names or sometimes what we do and then they associate things with us we just get rejected from CVs and we've just got as much experience as the next person yet somehow we don't meet that criteria what they're looking for and that's rejection and then we have to build on that and how we support one another through those hard times as well as the good times. I think that's one thing lockdowns taught me. You know, we have to be looking at. We don't want to build on the rubble of 2019. That's been left over from COVID. We have to build on new structures and build on new with new bricks and build on new structures that will be workable for everyone, not just for the privileged white male, but for everyone not one solution will fit for me but it will fit for everyone it has to fit for everyone
1: yeah I think what everyone said actually highlights the two different elements of the you know the imposter syndrome which is like mental when you do suffer rejection and you um and then yeah it just affects your confidence but then also the more external one of when it's actively organisations or companies um, and not even what they are doing, but what they're not doing to make or to make everyone feel included um, or represented when that triggers, um, you know, maybe what we would call the other type of imposter syndrome or mesh, are you saying that? Can we even call it imposter syndrome it, if it's not if it's kind of being impacted by external factors? Did you know if there was any other term for it?
2: Has all um... um, no, no, I think it's only known as imposter syndrome. But I think the, because it's not a syndrome in my mind, it's a phenomenon. I think I'm, I just call it imposter phenomenon whenever someone asks me, unless they're actually talking about the um,
1: imposter phenomenon.
2: Yeah this phenomenon means it's more kind of varied it's nothing it's not as what's well, the difference in how you the word itself phenomenon is like um it's something that's observed to happen whereas syndrome is literally defined as well a medical sign or symptom so it's it's why i call it phenomenon because it's just something that occurs it's not really anything you could do about it unless you change the entire you know social hierarchy and structure so it's just it just. Just happens. People do get it. Unlike the syndrome, it does have actual kind of signs and impacting kind of medical like, uh, context is behind it.
1: Absolutely. So we're all happy to coin the new term. I've obviously focused about like um, you know, what companies can do or you know. To create a better environment for um, people with more than one characteristics, but also what I find interesting is, you know, we have these groups, and I think this is probably a good example. We've got this is a blend of all of our of all of our groups together talking about intersectionality. So, what can what can groups that represent one characteristic do to
2: support their intersectional members? I mean, from my end, what I would like to see is groups who because you do get a lot of kind of narrow-minded people and minorities because it's just inherently kind of a bit you do it happens a lot and um, the same way we're talking about allies looking into it the same way that we can have an ally in terms of lgbt you can have an ally in terms of black lgbt in terms of someone who doesn't quite understand how the black experience might be for lgbt or the indian experience might be for LGBT experiences, but is willing to just go out and look into it and being able to adapt or even find someone else to talk to about it and not kind of taking it upon themselves to speak on behalf of everybody is just something that I'd like to see is where, yes, you can speak on behalf of your experiences personally and kind of what you represent, but that doesn't mean assuming that your representation is exactly what covers for me. And being able to just openly admit that I'm only speaking on, on my own experiences as opposed to the experience of everyone who's in this category is just something that would be quite nice in terms of taking that initiative and researching it and asking it and uh, if you have non-white or non-white middle class, you know, British LGBTQ members or anything like that, then you ask the people who aren't in that group about their experience and be able to kind of adapt and shape your own standing point on how to actually support people that way.
0: Yeah, I, th- I think that's a really good point, Mesh, because e- even if you're in the same category and, and you, you know you as, as you said about sort of the person coming in after you you're not the same you know just because you look similar and because you have the same sort of categorization on an ethnic diversity and diversity monitoring form doesn't mean you've had the same experience you know I've met people who would pretty much line up as the same sort of categories as me they're messes you know they're really lovely people but they didn't grow up in Brighton they didn't have very supportive quite liberal parents and so they are a mess of psychological conditions just fighting each other for who's going to top out this week you know and and some of them are even more put together you know and haven't had necessarily the interactions because they stayed in Brighton um, or other sort of very liberal places and have been able to just continue.
3: Someone once said, People have to transcend those dark spaces. We have to be prepared to go to places and people that we wouldn't normally meet. So, I mean, if we look at like the last five people you linked in with or had a message, text message with, how diverse are they from you? And how, or how different are they from you? It just, I mean, you just have to all look how, how your your close friendships at work I and mean, just broaden your horizons and try to see different people in different ways. There's, like, I think, reverse mentoring or 360 mentoring that we can... I'm probably standing down for maybe the difference in a year because work commitments and then, by default, I think Mesh is the perfect successor to me. But So I'm not mentoring, but we're having quite a lot of conversations online where we hopefully have the same vision for the group. I'll still be part of the group, be able to mentor people, but then it's good having that mentoring in a different so because Mesh has got completely different experiences to me on autism but we can still talk and joke about autism and disability in the same way and that's what we hope to breed in our group.
4: So I think how people can help is just to try and be more inclusive for example I I can see loads of companies are really uh, getting on the DNI bus (laughs) so to speak Um, but these committees that are being formed I've seen instances where it's it's not a particularly diverse group of people. They're all senior white people. And I've seen uh, reports of boards, which are so-called one-and-done boards, where they invite a woman onto the board and that's it. No more diversity needed. Um, so I think the issue is if there's a disconnect between what these boards and committees think their employees want as to what their employees actually want, then they're not going to be able to achieve widespread change
1: I just wanted to thank you all for participating in the discussion today there's so much value in having these discussions and hopefully by creating a platform for these issues and having these discussions we will continue to see effective change and a shift in workplace culture and thank you everyone for listening we wish you all a happy pride month
0: For more information about us, visit IOM3.org or to keep up to date with our latest news, follow us on social media using IOM3 on Twitter and at the Institute of Materials, Minerals and Mining on LinkedIn. If you're interested in our upcoming podcasts or want to get involved, please subscribe to hear more from us through Apple, Google Podcasts or Spotify.